1: are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health care provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new health care regimen, including EE system.
2: Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all of these states and the excitement of win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play from boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport. WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free thousand dollar sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. Away we go, episode 162 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, October 8th, 2021, a football Friday. As we get set for a monster sports weekend, NFL, college football, MLB playoffs, great time of year. The NHL season will start next week. The Capitals will conclude their preseason on Friday night with a game against the Philadelphia Flyers at Capital One Arena at 7. But yes, we are headed into a loaded sports weekend. Uh, Me personally, I am headed into being walloped this weekend. In fact, the walloping has already started. So I am, as I speak to you on this podcast, on my own with the kids, on my lonesome. Uh, As I am in my basement bunker studio, it is 3.55 a.m., on Friday. Uh, the two kids are upstairs sleeping and uh, likely plotting. Uh, my wife is in California for an extended bachelorette party for my sister. You see, one day slash night one good enough had to be four days, had to be 3,000 miles away in California. And so it is my four-year-old son, my one-year-old daughter, and me. The gleesome threesome. Uh, Yeah this is uh, this is probably not gonna end well I'm guessing okay I mean I am gonna get overrun I, I am very much aware of this this is gonna be like an Afghanistan situation okay like my wife is the president of Afghanistan she went off and running okay I'm the Afghan army putting up very little resistance and my two kids are the Taliban doing whatever it is they want to do. In fact, I overheard my son saying he wants to get his hands on another Black Hawk helicopter. I'm not sure what that was about. But yeah, I'm not proud of this, okay? But I feel like I can confide in you uh, because we've become such good pals. Anyway, wish me luck. Uh, not that it's going to mean much. Not that I have any real chance here. But yeah, big sports weekend and thus a big Football Friday installment of the podcast. It's great to be with you. In-depth preview of the Washington football team's game against the New Orleans Saints at FedEx Field this Sunday afternoon at 1 begins. Next segment is I will talk Washington offense off what offensive coordinator Scott Turner had to say on Thursday at his post-practice press conference, including some good stuff on Taylor Heineke and on Washington's plan at tight end, given that Logan Thomas now is on the reserve injured list. I will talk Washington defense off what defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio had to say on Thursday at his post-practice press conference. Jack had a perhaps very telling comment about what's going on with the defense, which, as you may have heard, uh, has been disappointing so far this season. Uh, But there is reason for hope. I'll get into that. Uh, Special guest, Ross Jackson, the host of the Locked on Saints podcast and the co-managing editor of the Canal Street Chronicles, which is the SB Nation site for the Saints. He'll tell us all we need to know about the Saints. I'll give you my rhyming keys for a Washington win over the Saints says, yes, I will rhyme the path to victory for Washington. And I do have some thoughts for you on the latest in the Ryan Vermilion situation. Uh, also, I have four Goldilocks for you for college football week six, a monster Saturday for the big four in terms of college football in the region. You have Maryland at number seven, Ohio State. You have Virginia Tech home to number 14, Notre Dame. You have Virginia at Louisville, and you have Navy home to number 24 SMU. A friendly reminder uh, when you have 30 seconds to kill, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give this podcast a five star rating if you haven't yet done that. And please write just like a one or two sentence review saying how much you like the podcast if you haven't yet done that. These things help out a lot. I know they can seem kind of silly, and they are, but they do help out a lot in terms of the cause. Uh, that is the podcast. And you can hit pause on your iPhone or iPad right now and do these things. And uh, I thank you very much for doing these things. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Mark Bennett on Taylor Heineke writes Mark, may you kindly do a moment on Taylor's accuracy? There's this narrative on Sports Talk Radio that Tate is quite wildly inaccurate. I see the numbers, yet they don't add up to the talk. He's accurate. Yes, he can miss, but wildly inaccurate? Question mark. Talk to us, Al. Fix these staters. Uh, thank you for the email, Mark. So when it comes to Taylor Heineke's accuracy, I think the three things are true. Uh, number one, Taylor Heineke is not, say, pinpoint with his accuracy. Number two, Taylor Heineke has effectively completed a high percentage of his passes. And number three, Taylor Heineke, because he is an aggressive thrower of the football and gives his playmakers chances to make plays, is going to have throws that aren't precisely where they need to be. For the record, Taylor Heineke through week four was eighth among qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in completion percentage at 69.5. Yes, the wildly inaccurate Taylor Heineke was eighth among qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in completion percentage at 69.5. Now, we can be far more sophisticated than just your normal run-of-the-mill completion percentage stat. The NFL's next-gen stats has a metric called expected completion percentage, which is what a passer's completion percentage is expected to be by using a passer's completion probability on every play. Uh, completion probability is the probability of a pass completion-based On a number of factors, including receiver separation from the nearest defender, uh, where the receiver is on the field, the separation that the passer had at the time of the throw from the nearest pass rusher, and other things. Well, Taylor Heineke through week four had an actual completion percentage of, like we said, 69.5, and an expected completion percentage of 66. So he had a completion percentage above expectation of 3.5. That ranked is the eighth best completion percentage above expectation in the NFL. So yes, you can make the case that Heineke has completed some passes that he shouldn't have completed, but it's not like he has done so to an extent that should make you think that he's a total fraud, okay? And completing a pass that you're not supposed to complete doesn't necessarily mean that you got lucky. Completing a pass that you're not supposed to complete can mean that you just made an outstanding throw as Heineke did on that touchdown pass to Ricky Seals-Jones in the win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field on Thursday Night Football in Week 2. What was a fourth quarter, first and 10, 19-yard shotgun play action touchdown pass. Uh, That Heineke touchdown pass to Seals-Jones had a completion probability for the NFL's next-gen stats of just 13.7%. That was the lowest completion probability of any Washington touchdown pass since next-gen stats started tracking such data beginning with the 2017 season. So that play in particular boosted Heineke's completion percentage above expectation. But you tell me, was that just a lucky throw for Heineke? Or was there a heck of a lot of skill on display from Heineke on that throw? The answer is the latter. Heineke delivered a perfectly placed pass to Seals-Jones, Who made a nice leaping catch with his arms outstretched above his head near the back right corner of the end zone while being defended by defensive backer Dory Jackson? Give Ricky Sills Jones a lot of credit for that play, but also give Heineke credit for that play. Like, is Heineke Drew Brees in terms of accuracy? No, but you don't have to be Drew Brees in terms of accuracy in order to be a good quarterback. And Heineke so far this season has been a good quarterback despite what the Taylor Heineke deniers. The Taylor Heineke haters, the Taytay haters, the haters, have to say. Uh, email from Brian Wood on the Washington football team's struggling defense writes Brian, why not have Landon Collins move to the linebacker position and move Curl, as in, of course, Cameron Curl, to free safety? Collins would be better suited in the box. He's a liability in the secondary and was last year, too. Your thoughts? So Landon Collins is playing strong safety right now. We have seen a decent amount of three safety looks for Washington this season. Collins Curl and Bobby McCain on the field at the same time. Look, I'm open to lineup changes for the defense, okay? But specific to Landon at linebacker, he probably would have to put on some weight to do that, and it's too late for that now. I mean, we're already into week five. Uh, Landon is listed by Washington as being six feet tall and 218 pounds. Uh, Cole Holcomb, for comparison's sake is listed by Washington as being 6'1", 240. Uh, Jamin Davis is listed by Washington as being 6'3", 234. Now, size isn't everything. That's true. And someone who I talked about on Thursday's show, episode 161, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, uh, he's not very big. He's listed by the Cleveland Browns as being 6'2", 221. He's been outstanding so far this season. But JOK is an athletic freak. Uh, I would not call Landon Collins... An athletic freak, Landon Collins is coming off a torn Achilles. Uh, so, would Landon mid-season be able to adapt to being a full-time linebacker while being undersized and still coming off the torn Achilles? Uh, I'm not sure about that. Uh, now, Landon at times is deployed like a linebacker, so we should note that. But being a full-time linebacker would be a different story. To say nothing of Landon having to embrace being. A full time linebacker. And the indications this past offseason were that he had no interest in being a full time linebacker. Uh, I do think that this is it for Landon Collins. I think that Washington is going to cut him this offseason, barring some drastic turnaround to his season. You know, you always have to throw in that qualifier, right? Barring some drastic turnaround, barring the unforeseen, because you never know. Things do change, Uh, like your health, especially with your skin. And if you have questions or concerns regarding your skin, always know that you can contact Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Dr. Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. He is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He's a big Washington football team fan and a big listener of this podcast. And operating under the direction of Dr. Verghese is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The Institute focuses on medical skin care, cosmetic procedures, and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care. Skin cancer is the most common of all cancers, accounts for nearly half of all cancer cases in the United States. If you feel like you need to get checked, if you are dealing with skin cancer, if you have had skin cancer and haven't seen a doctor in a while, contact Dr. George Bergese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The phone number is 301 396 3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. And understand that the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offers something very special and cutting edge in the treatment of skin cancer, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301 396 3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdy sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401 or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, the 2-2 two and two Washington football team faces the 2-2 two and two New Orleans Saints at FedEx Field this Sunday afternoon at 1. Next segment, I'm going to talk Washington defense, but right now we talk Washington offense off what offensive coordinator Scott Turner said on Thursday at his post-practice press conference. Sunday's game against the Saints will be start number five for Taylor Heineke as a Washington quarterback, regular season and postseason, and this will be a big test. Saints through week four were number two in the NFL in total defense per football outsiders DVOA metric, this is a physical Saints defense, although this is a Saints defense it's coming off a rough game in a 27-21 home overtime loss to the New York Giants last Sunday. Giants in that game had 485 total net yards of offense, averaged 8.1 yards per play. The Giants quarterback, Daniel Jones, in that game threw for 402 yards. He is mobile, so too is Heineke. Will Heineke do as Jones did against the Saints? Scott Turner on Thursday on how Taylor Heineke's mobility helps Scott as a play caller.
3: You know, when you got a guy like Taylor, you, you, you can call the game um, a little bit like more free, I guess you would say. And like, you know, hey, if they cover it or, you know, and it's not just because he can run. It's because he makes good decisions. And like, hey, you know, you can. Maybe be a little more aggressive or not have to worry about, hey, this has got to be the perfect call because you trust the guy that he's going to, you know, he's going to make it right. You know what I mean? Or he's going to get you to second and 10 if it's a first and 10 call. Um, That would be the way, like the best way I could describe that. Um, And I think Taylor's done a nice job. And, you know, we sat in here and it was a little bit different mood last week. and, And we talked about him making a couple of mistakes. And, you know, it's that. It's just walking that line, walking that line of uh, being fearless and and being reckless, you know, and we'd rather have a guy like him that's going to push it than someone that's going to be afraid to pull the trigger.
2: And afraid is one thing that we all can agree that Heineke is not. We certainly saw that on Heineke's two fourth quarter touchdown passes and the 34-30 win at the Atlanta Falcons last Sunday, especially on the first Fourth quarter touchdown pass. Heineke's fourth quarter first and 10, 17 yard under center play action touchdown pass to Terry McLaurin to cut Washington's deficit to 30 28. The miracle play as Heineke somehow escaped being sacked by edge rusher Dante Fowler Jr., and then took a shot from linebacker Foyer Aluakin while heaving up a prayer into the end zone. A lot has been made of that throw. Having been a reckless throw. Uh, Heineke's collegiate head coach, former Old Dominion head coach Bobby Wilder, pushed back on that during his appearance on the podcast this week. Uh, Coach Wilder joined me on Wednesday's show. Episode 160 was terrific. Uh, I know a lot of you agree with me on that. And what Wilder told us was what Heineke then said at his post practice press conference on Wednesday. Uh, There was a method to the madness uh, because Heineke knew that he was throwing to Terry McLaurin. So, yeah, there was risk in the throw. But it wasn't the insane chance that some seem to think that it was. Heineke was doing what plenty of good quarterbacks do. Patrick Mahomes does this kind of a thing. You give an elite playmaker the chance to make a play. You know, you throw up a 50-50 ball and you bank on your elite playmaker either making the catch or deflecting the football to where the defensive back doesn't make the interception. Here was Scott Turner on Thursday with his take on Heineke's fourth quarter touchdown pass to McLaurin in the win at the Falcons.
3: It is a risky throw. Uh, if you watch, so if you watch the, like you guys, I know a lot of you guys watch it all twenty-two. So if you watch it all twenty-two on that, we had a route set up to Terry, and he won. The guy fell down. You know what I mean? He beat him bad. I mean, it was a really nice route, and I didn't see that because I saw the we had a protection issue. You know what I mean? So I saw that, and I saw Taylor scramble, and his timing was off, and I saw him throw the ball, and I it wasn't a great reaction by me <laughs> at the time, but. Then when I, I understand why he threw it. Now, what happened was he got hit as he was throwing it too. So now it leads to the ball even hanging out longer. If he would have got off clean, I think it wouldn't have even looked as bad as what it did. Um, because the guy was getting up trying to trying to scramble back to make a play. Obviously, it was a uh, um you know they didn't throw a flag for pi, but I think that's just because uh, Terry caught it. I think they were it, he looked like he's going to grab for his flag. But anyways, he Terry you know makes a great play. I, it's at the at the heat of the moment, you know. What I mean, it's hard to fault them for that. But that's kind of what I'm talking. That's you're walking the line right there for that.
2: Walking the line, uh, but not crossing the line. Uh, now, as you likely know, Scott Turner and Taylor Heineke go back. Uh, Scott was the only NFL coach who visited Heineke at Old Dominion. Scott had Heineke with the Minnesota Vikings during Scott's time as Vikings quarterbacks coach. Scott then had Heineke with the Carolina Panthers during Scott's time as Panthers quarterbacks coach. And Scott, of course, now has Heineke with the Washington football team during Scott's time as Washington offensive coordinator. And so Scott on Thursday was asked what he now knows about Heineke that Scott did not know a month ago.
3: It's just confirming the stuff I already knew. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, you know, I think I've said this before to you guys, but, you know, he plays like he played when he played in preseason. He's better now. He's got more experience. He's been around the game longer. Um, But, you know, now when he was doing it before, it was against twos and threes later in games, and he wasn't ever doing it as a starter in real regular season games. And you don't ever know until you see it. Uh, But, you know, he can play, you know. And and like I said, he's fearless, and uh, the guys believe in him. And, you know, he's a good decision maker. And like I said, I mean, so nothing has changed. You know what I mean? It's just kind of, to me, confirming what I already thought.
2: And Heineke, as we've discussed on the podcast this week, has been playing at a pretty high level. Uh, Heineke through week four was top 13 among qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in most major statistical categories, including the ones that, to me, matter the most. You know, the best advanced stats out there for quarterback play. Heineke was number 13 in ESPN's total QBR. Number 11 in yards per pass attempt. Number eight in Football Outsiders DVOA metric. DVOA stands for defense-adjusted value over average. It's a great measurement of per-play efficiency. Uh, Heineke was number 10 in Football Outsiders DYAR metric. DYAR stands for defense-adjusted yards above replacement. It's similar to WAR, wins above replacement in baseball. Here's something simple. Heineke's eight touchdown passes are the most by a Washington quarterback through week four of a season since Brad Johnson's nine touchdown passes through week four of the 1999 season. Like, there's something basic that I think, in a lot of ways, captures the way that Taylor Heineke has played. No Washington quarterback has had this many touchdown passes through week four of a season since Brad Johnson. In the 1999 season, no Washington quarterback this millennium has done what Heineke is doing. Now, Washington's offense is banged up big time. Four Washington players did not practice on Thursday. All four of those players, offensive players, three of them receivers uh, Curtis Samuel, De'Ami Brown, and Cam Sims, each did not practice on Thursday for a second consecutive day. Samuel has the groin, Brown a knee, Sims a hamstring. Also, Brandon Sheriff did not practice on Thursday for a second consecutive day. He's dealing with a knee. The good news is that Antonio Gibson, who did not practice on Wednesday, did practice on Thursday, albeit in limited fashion. He's dealing with a shin. And J.D. McKissick, who was limited in practice on Wednesday, was a full participant in practice on Thursday. He's dealing with an ankle. And on top of all of this, we have Washington on Wednesday having placed Logan Thomas on the reserve injured list with his hamstring injury. So Ricky Seals-Jones will be Washington's TE1 for this Sunday's game against the Saints. Seals-Jones in the win at the Falcons last Sunday, two receptions for 19 yards on four targets and playing on 93% of Washington's offensive snaps. Did have some negative moments. Uh, Washington's third offensive drive resulted in Taylor Heineke's second quarter, third and eight, 33-yard shotgun touchdown pass to Terry McLaurin. The sixth snap of the drive, the snap right before the touchdown, Ricky Seals Jones had a drop on a Taylor Heineke second and eight shotgun incompletion, although Falcon safety Jalen Hawkins got away with a hold on Seals Jones. Uh, Washington's eighth offensive drive resulted in Taylor Heineke's fourth quarter touchdown pass to Terry McLaurin. The first snap of that drive, Ricky Seals Jones committed a first and ten five yard false start penalty. Scott Turner on Thursday on Ricky Seals Jones.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's really just like he did on Sunday. Ricky's got to step in and play, you know, and and Ricky's a good target, and he's a tough guy, um, and he can run, uh, and, you know, it it ain't too big for him at all. You know, he's played before, um, and he did an outstanding job on Sunday of stepping in and and making plays and uh, had a really nice run after catch and did a nice job, you know, in the blocking, Um, and I expect the same from him. You know, he's got to step in, and that's, you know, part of being a backup player in this league, you know, and it's twofold when a guy gets hurt like you got to step up and that's your job to come in and produce and it's also exciting for them because it's an opportunity to go and say hey maybe I should be playing a little bit more and and uh you know so that's the opportunity that Ricky has and I'm really excited for him because he's really been working hard through camp um and I think he's a good player and and he's ready for it
2: and he has a big chance in front of him now with Logan Thomas on the reserve injured list. Uh, Washington signed Seals-Jones this past May 25th as an unrestricted free agent. This season is his age 26 season. Uh, Seals-Jones, over his first four NFL seasons, 2017 through 2020, 60 receptions for 773 yards and eight touchdowns on 120 targets over 41 regular season games. He had the 2019 regular season for the Cleveland Browns, had 14 receptions for 229 yards and four touchdowns on 22 targets. Seals Jones was a receiver at Texas A&M. He entered the NFL draft as an undrafted free agent at a Texas A&M with the Arizona Cardinals in May 2017, spent the 2017 and 2018 seasons with the Cardinals, the 2019 season with the Cleveland Browns, and the 2020 season with the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, look, when Washington signed Ricky Seals Jones in late May, he was viewed by many of us as just like a training camp body and probably nothing more Uh, He was fine in the preseason and training camp, but I mean, it's not like anybody was really overwhelmed with him, but he ended up making Washington's initial 53-man roster. And now he's Washington's top tight end going into this game against the Saints at FedEx Field. Of course, he also had the spectacular touchdown reception in Washington's win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field on Thursday Night Football in Week 2. Scott Turner on Thursday on the offseason acquisition of Ricky Seals-Jones.
3: We signed him, you know, he was on the street and brought him in as a free agent um, and, you know, he just kind of started making some plays where you started noticing him and, um, and he truly worked his way into the role that he, he was in. I mean, it wasn't, we didn't sign him thinking, hey, this is a big free agent signing, he's going to be back up tight end um, and I don't think anyone looked at it that way and, and, uh, but he worked his way into that spot and, you know, we got him opportunities and, you know, we've, I've said this before about other guys, like you do, you do a nice job of the opportunity you have. The goal is more opportunities and that's what happened with Ricky. And now he's got a really big opportunity uh, coming up Sunday.
2: Yes, he does. Now, what about Washington's other tight ends? Uh, Washington has fourth round rookie John Bates has rookie Samus Reyes, who is yet to be active And has Jace Sternberger, who Washington signed off the Seattle Seahawks practice squad on Wednesday. More from Scott Turner on Thursday on the Washington football team's tight end situation for Sunday against the Saints.
3: Yeah, so, you know, it's going to be, you know, Ricky, um, you know, Ricky will fill in like the Logan role and then and then uh, Bates will kind of fill in like what Ricky's role was when he's playing when he, you know, playing however many snaps Ricky played a game before Logan got hurt. And then, you know, Samus has got to get himself ready and we could have some packages for him. And, you know, those guys, they're big special teams contributors, too. And Ricky is so, you know, that that role has got to be filled by the similar body type. So Samus, you know, will get ready to do that kind of stuff. but I mean, that's it really. And we brought in Jason, but he just got here, you know, so we'll get him ready to go and see if we'll, you know, we can use him in the future because it's going to be, you know, a couple weeks at least or whatever. I know, we, you know, you we saw we put Logan on IR, so at least three, you know, so we got to get get those guys up, get guys going and ready to play.
2: All right. So Washington for Sunday against the Saints is down its top tight end, could be without its starting right guard. In Brandon Sheriff, and could be without three receivers, Curtis Samuel, De'Ami Brown, and Cam Sims. Each did not practice on Thursday for a second consecutive day, and so might we, on Sunday, be seeing more opportunity for De'Andre Carter at receiver? Carter, in the win at the Falcons, had the great kickoff return, right? Returned the opening kickoff of the second half, 101 yards for a touchdown. Uh, Carter on Wednesday, by the way, was named NFC Special Teams Player of the Week, but Carter in the win at the Falcons also had a big catch. The game-winning drive resulted in Taylor Heineke's third and seven 30-yard shotgun touchdown pass to J.D. McKissick with 33 seconds left in the fourth quarter. The second snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a second and 10, 24-yard shotgun play action completion to DeAndre Carter. Who finished with just that one reception for 24 yards on one target and playing on 16% of Washington's offensive snaps? But that was a huge play, Scott Turner, on Thursday on DeAndre Carter.
3: Yeah, um, so DeAndre uh, is a very serious, you know, professional. Um, he he is prepared. Um, he went in and made that play. I told him after the locker room, like the kick return was great, but I was more excited about the big catch he had in that last two minute drive and i don't know if he's ever run that route before to be honest and he definitely didn't do it this week in practice you know but he knew i mean we lost you know diami and cam like back to back and you know and and curtis you know we had him on a pitch count he exceeded that pitch count by quite a bit and that we had the long drive right before that and curtis was you know a little bit you know tired so we had to start it off with deandre and uh And he made a huge play that helped us win the game, and that's the kind of thing that I'm kind of talking about with all the backup players, but um, it's a good example of it because, you know, he was ready to go. He knew what to do, and he made the play when the ball came his way. And he's got some good reps in practice. And, you know, he's mostly a guy that plays inside, but he can play outside as well. Um, And, you know, he's quick and he's strong, and, you know, we, we trust him to go make the plays.
2: And he made a big play last Sunday. Washington signed Carter uh, this past April 1st as an unrestricted free agent. This is Carter's age 28 season. He's known as a return man, not as a receiver. Uh, Carter came to Washington with just 34 receptions over 43 career NFL regular season games. Scott on Thursday on what he expected from DeAndre Carter when Washington signed him.
3: I didn't know anything about him, to be honest with you. And, and I know that we, yeah, we signed him as a returner. Um, I watched. I knew he'd played some offense. Um, I've been impressed with him since the day he got here and the way he works. Uh, and, he, and I, you know, thought to myself, wow, this is a guy that, you know, we could use on offense, you know, and we've done it a little bit. And then obviously played a lot, the, the most he's played. And he'll, you know, get ready to play more uh, this next game.
2: The good news for Washington on offense from an injury standpoint is that it is looking like both Antonio Gibson and J.D. McKissick will be good to go on Sunday against the Saints. Each guy has had a very impressive touchdown reception over the last two games. Uh, Gibson and the loss at the Buffalo Bills in week three had that second quarter second and eight 73 yard touchdown reception, caught the ball at about the Washington 22 and then exploded downfield ran by multiple Bills defenders then did an outstanding job of plowing through corner Tredavious White and diving at the front right pylon for the touchdown. Then McKissick in the win at the Falcons in week four had that third and seven 30-yard touchdown reception with 33 seconds left in the fourth quarter, caught the ball at the 30, broke through an attempted tackle by linebacker Deion Jones, exploded down the right sideline, and then made that incredible leap toward, wait for it, the front right pylon for a 34-30 Washington lead. No team is doing pylon dives quite like the Washington football team is these days. Taylor Heineke twice, if you go back to the wild card loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field this past January. Gibson in the week three loss at the Bills. McKissick in the week four win at the Falcons. Also, Gibson is averaging 4.29 yards per carry, and McKissick was terrific in pass pro. And the win at the Falcons. I tell you, he does not get enough credit for that. Scott Turner on Thursday on Washington's top two running backs, Antonio Gibson and JD McKissick.
3: Um, I think they've both been, been doing great. Uh, you know, they can both fill in for each other. You know, Antonio's the one that sometimes if he's in back to back to back plays or we don't have it, like, you know, he needs a blow, you know, and that's where, you know, JD most of the time does that. JP's gone in there some, um, you know, and done that. But, you know, those guys are, they do a great job. They're like, they're kind of like brothers. I mean, they, they give each other a hard time and they're really close. And JD's done a great job of really mentoring Antonio um, as a professional. Uh, but that, I think their roles have been perfect so far as far as, I mean, not perfect, but, you know, they, they play well off each other. They've both been very productive. Um, and I think that that will continue as the season goes on.
2: Yeah, what's interesting about Gibson and McKissick is that each is a former receiver, right? Gibson played a ton of receiver at Memphis. McKissick was a receiver at Arkansas State. Scott Turner on Thursday on how Gibson's and McKissick's receiver backgrounds help from a play calling standpoint.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't have to like. There, there, there's not really limitations with those guys, you know. And sometimes at that position, you'll get into somewhere. You know, there's some plays that you're not necessarily comfortable calling, um, and with those guys, like there's some plays that I'd rather have one than the other, but um, but nothing that you're like, oh man, I can't call this with, with those guys. So that, that makes it really easy. And yeah, it's funny that like you know we talk about them being similar, and Antonio's like basically 235 pounds, you know, and it's a little bit different, you know, but they do have some similar uh, you know skill sets.
2: Yes, they do. And then there is. The Washington football team's defense. What or what are we going to get from that on Sunday against the Saints? I'll get to that after this.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
2: Our special guest is coming up next segment, Ross Jackson, the host of the Locked on Saints podcast and the co-managing editor of the Canal Street Chronicles, which is the SB Nation site for the New Orleans Saints. And after my chat with Ross will be my rhyming keys for a Washington football team win against the Saints at FedEx Field this Sunday afternoon. Last segment, we talked Washington offense. Right now, we get into the Washington defense off what defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio said On Thursday at his post-practice press conference. So some good injury news for Washington's defense on Thursday. It looks like Benjamin St. Juice will be back on Sunday. He missed the 34-30 win at the Atlanta Falcons last Sunday due to a concussion. But St. Juice on Thursday was a full participant in practice. Very encouraging sign regarding him playing on Sunday. I mean, nothing is for sure, but St. Juice certainly seems to be trending in the right direction. He on Wednesday was a limited participant In practice, four Washington defensive players were limited participants in practice on Thursday. Cole Holcomb, who did not practice on Wednesday due to a shoulder, Uh, Jonathan Allen, Matt Ioannidis, and DeShazer Everett. Allen, Ioannidis, and Everett, uh, each guy was a limited participant in practice for a second straight day. Each guy is dealing with a knee. James Smith Williams, he was a full participant in practice on Thursday, off having been limited on Wednesday. He's dealing with a toe. So here's a stat for you. The Washington football team so far this season has trailed on 89.1% of the team's offensive snaps. That is the highest such rate in the NFL. 89.1%. That is atrocious. Washington's offense is like never playing with a lead this season. And this is just another item in a long line of items that are indictments of this Washington football team defense, which through week four was 28th out of 32 NFL teams in total defense per Football Outsiders DVOA metric and was dead last in the NFL in opponents third down efficiency at 59.7%. Oh, by the way, the Saints through week Four eighth in the NFL in passing offense per DVOA and 6th in the NFL and third down efficiency. The Saints can move the football. So we've spent a lot of time talking about the Washington football team's defense and why it has been so bad so far this season. I do still believe that this defense will be better. I refuse to believe that this defense truly is this bad. And here's some reason for optimism. ESPN NFL analyst Bill Barnwell, uh, one of the smartest people when it comes to writing about the NFL, He had the following on Washington's defense in an ESPN Plus piece that came out on Thursday. Quote, history tells us that over time, a team will typically play the same way on third and fourth downs that the team does on first and second downs. A good example of this last season was with the Saints defense. Through four games, it ranked 10th in EPA per play allowed on first and second downs and dead last on third and fourth downs. EPA is expected points added. High-level stat. Continues Barnwell. After the first month of the season, that changed. The Saints had the fourth-best defense in the NFL on first and second downs and had the second-best EPA per play in the league on third and fourth downs. Washington won't keep allowing teams To convert 59.7% of the time on third down over the remainder of the season. And on the flip side, the Lions are surviving on defense by limiting teams to converting 27.8% of the time on third down. And that won't keep up over the rest of the campaign. The league's second best defense at getting off the field so far this season is 30th in EPA per play on first and second downs. That's not going to keep up. End quote. So some reason for optimism with the Washington football team's defense, some reason to believe that a progression to the mean is coming for Washington's defense, at least regarding third downs. But what if new problems start to emerge for this Washington football team defense? Take, for instance, tackling. Tackling really had not been that much of a problem for Washington's defense in each of the first three games of the season, but tackling was a major problem in the win at the Falcons this past Sunday. The play that stands out is Matt Ryan's third and three, seven-yard shotgun touchdown pass to running back Mike Davis on the first snap of the fourth quarter. Four Washington players failed on attempted tackles on the play. John Bostick, Bobby McCain, Kendall Fuller, and Duran Payne. Just a total embarrassment. This was Jack Del Rio on Thursday.
4: Yeah, as far as tackling... Yeah, I mean we we had too many missed tackles in the last ball game, and um, uh, I mean tackling. There's some basic tenets to playing good defense, and um, you know, winning on third down is part of it. Uh, tackling, swarming, tackling is part of it. Disrupting the quarterback, you know, all those things. So um, that's, that's clearly one of them. Yeah, it was the tackling was not strong like we needed it to be last week.
2: No, it was not. And if now all of a sudden tackling is going to be an issue for this Washington defense, then watch out, man. Uh, things could get even worse for the defense. I thought that this was interesting from Jack Del Rio on Thursday. Had to do with one of the many bizarre realities with this struggling Washington defense. And that reality is everyone seems to recognize what the problems are, but the problems keep happening. Players not adhering to the scheme. Guys trying to do too much. Uh, Maybe one guy just being off on a play. The likes of Chase Young and Montez Sweat being chipped. Defensive backs not communicating properly. Uh, We keep hearing about these things, and yet these things keep being things. Every week is the same thing. The defense struggles. We all are furious. The coaches and players talk about the problems. We get optimistic for the next game. The defense struggles, again, rinse, wash, repeat. And so how about this from Jack Del Rio on Thursday?
4: Well, I think what's happening is there's a lot of talk, and you can't talk your way out of it. So it doesn't really matter what I say, what we talk about. It's what we do. You know, it's a production-based business. Um, we, we need to play better in those areas, and, and a lot of things will be unlocked. Uh, our defensive, um, um, I guess, how people look at our defense will dramatically change as we strengthen our third down stops, and that will happen.
2: It better happen, but I thought that that initial part of Jack's answer was telling, quote, there's a lot of talk, and you can't talk your way out of it. End quote. No, you can't. And whether the talk is all fluff, and is not addressing what's really going on with the defense, or whether the talk is legit, and just the same problems keep occurring for whatever reason. This all needs to stop, because this pattern of everyone talking about the problems and then the problems continuing is already getting old. Well, what's also old is paying six percent or more in commission to a real estate agent. John Grandland of Real Broker is changing that with commission flex. Listen up if you're looking to sell your home. The days of some flat commission rate, regardless of how easy it is to sell your home, are over. Take advantage of John Grandlin's commission flex. You know how Ron Rivera loves position flex? Position flex. Yes, Ron. Position flex. Well, John Grandlin offers commission flex. What is commission flex, you ask? It's simple. Flexible commission rates. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, don't pay 6%. John Grandlin will put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John Grandlin has a menu of commission packages from which you can choose, including selling your home for free. Yeah, you heard that right. For free, zero commission. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, do yourself a favor, call John Grandlin. This is a phone call that could make and or save you tens of thousands of dollars. You have nothing to lose. Call John G. now. The phone number is 703-537-6747. When you talk to John Granlin, make sure that you tell him that Al Galdi sent you and make sure that you ask John G. about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast. Commission Flex. That phone number again, 703-537-6747. 47 or visit johng Sellsforfree.com. That's John G Sellsforfree.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And never forget, he is the originator of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron. Just like position flex. As we continue to prepare for the 2-2 and Washington football team versus the 2-2 and New Orleans Saints at FedEx Field this Sunday afternoon at 1, it is time to culminate our opposition research with a special guest, Ross Jackson, the host of the Locked on Saints podcast and the co-managing editor of the Canal Street Chronicles, which is the SB Nation site for the Saints. You can follow Ross on Twitter, at Ross Jackson, NOLA. Ross, it's nice to talk to you, man. How are you?
5: Hey, man. You as well. Appreciate you having me on. Uh, things going well over here. Appreciate you asking, and i uh, excited to preview this game a little bit. I think it's going to be a fun one.
2: Yeah, I'm with you. A uh, very intriguing matchup. So, the Saints are really interesting. Two wins, or two impressive wins, 38-3 over Green Bay in Week 1, 28-13 in New England in Week 3, and then you have the two losses, uh, 26-7 at Carolina in Week 2, and then this 27-21 overtime loss to the Giants in Week 4. What do you make of how, like Jekyll and Hyde, the Saints have been so far this season?
5: Yeah, it's been interesting because they have been strong at the same things, but then they've been weak at different things. I mean, it's it's been really interesting to sort of watch the way that the, the shuffle has happened. If you would have asked me before the season what their record would be through four games, I would have said 2-2, two and two, but my expectation was... Uh, a win against Carolina, a win against the the Giants with losses where they now have wins. So they've been really interesting to watch throughout. I think the the core things that they're trying to make sure that they're you know providing and that they're giving themselves in games is, first of all, a run game and then a defense. And against the uh, Carolina Panthers, the defense struggled early, got hot late, but then the offense wasn't able to really get going. Against New York, the run game was absolutely there. The defense was there early, but then struggled late. So Where they have struggled has changed in each of these games, and it just kind of gives you the marking identifier of a team that's still trying to figure out its identity so far, particularly over on the offensive side, but I think there's some truth to that over the defensive side as well.
2: What's your evaluation of Jameis Winston through four games as a Saints starting quarterback?
5: Yeah, I think he's getting a little bit more comfortable in the system. I think there's still trust to be earned between he and Sean Payton, as well as the rest of the weapons that are around in this offense, which... You know, surprise, surprise, you're still working on trust with a quarterback that started four games in your system. That's not really that shocking at all, but I think that that's really where they are so far. Uh, Thus far, you know, 10 touchdowns to two interceptions. If you would have asked anybody before the season, the expectation was easily that it would have been the other way around. The way that people talked about James Winston and being in this. Sean Payton offense that they expected to take a lot more shots downfield, be a lot more aggressive. But so far, this team has remained calculatory and methodical in terms of of moving the ball. You only have one game so far with Jameis Winston over 200 passing yards. That was the loss against New York at home in the Dome. And then you have the uh, three games so far where the Saints have gone over 130 rushing yards, which to this point over the last two seasons, they've been 12 and one when they hit that mark. So they have the
2: identifier of what it is that's a winning formula for them and Jameis Winston's not a way to fit into that. When it comes to Taysom Hill, has the usage of him with Jameis Winston as a sane starting quarterback been the same as the usage of Hill was with Drew Brees as a same starting quarterback? So far, for the most
5: part, it's been pretty much the same of what you said as what you saw with Drew Brees third down red zone type situations. The the outlier being this loss against the Giants, where he played twelve percent of snaps, eighty eight percent, or he played more than twelve percent of snaps, but he played twelve percent of the quarterback snaps in place of uh, Jameis Winston, and that was really out of the ordinary. There in terms of that point, but you know, in terms of him having you know twenty plus snaps so far all across the offense at quarterback in the backfield in line out wider in the spot that part of his identity has still very much been the same. And the quarterback power to the right has uh, been a, a big staple for the Saints over the past couple of years, and that hasn't changed here so far in two thousand twenty one.
2: How much of a thing was Taysom Hill and not Jameis Winston being the heir apparent to Drew Brees as the Saints starting quarterback?
5: Oh, no, it was absolutely a thing. It was absolutely a the legitimate quarterback competition between Taysom Hill and Jameis Winston. That's what the entire offseason was about. It's what the entire portion of training camp preseason. I mean, this was a legitimate quarterback competition between the two. And kudos to Taysom Hill for working his way into that conversation as a guy that came in undrafted to the Green Bay Packers coming from the BYU. And then not seeing an NFL, any NFL action in the regular season until... You know, a late week 15 game with the New Orleans Saints one team later when they put him out in punt coverage. And then now all of a sudden, three years later, he is, you know, battling out the number one uh, overall selection in, in a previous draft uh, for potential of being the starting quarterback for uh, that system and for one of the best offensive minds in the NFL and Sean Payton. But uh, you know, yeah, it was a legitimate quarterback competition between the two, and I think there's still evidence here that you know, obviously Sean Payton and this coaching staff liked very much what they saw from Taysom, hence why he continues to get the snaps that he gets.
2: Talking Washington, New Orleans with Ross Jackson, the host of the Locked On Saints podcast, the co-managing editor of the Canal Street Chronicles. So Michael Thomas, uh, he has been on the active, physically unable to perform list. How much have the Saints missed him? And uh, where are we with the unhappiness of Michael Thomas with the Saints? Uh, something that, of course, became such a big thing just a few months ago. Yeah,
5: so far so good on that front. The the latter front there, in terms of all of the the conflict between Michael Thomas and and the team, he's been with the team. He has traveled with the team in some circumstances, or traveled to meet the team in certain circumstances. He's been, you know, the C.J. Johnson, the uh, wide receiver coach, has gotten to work with him a little bit, see that he seems to be on track and ready. Uh, to get back, and so the Saints very much miss him. Um, you know, they have a, a, a they're down. Their number one wide receiver, their number two wide receiver, and they have a receiving core right now that reflects that. Deontay Harris probably the most reliable option thus far. But you know, that's your your five seven return. You know, your all pro return man, not your you know, number one wide receiver. And Marquez Calloway, who had a really great preseason and looked like he was ready to break out here in his second year, has gotten off to a slow start. Separation has been an issue for these wide receivers so far. So getting a guy like Michael Thomas back, who creates natural separation, who runs the crossing patterns, the man beaters, the things that the New Orleans Saints like to run and those looks, uh, you know, getting him back would be a, a big time benefit for them after the bye week or potentially after the week seven matchup
2: with the Seattle Seahawks, which would be the earliest that he could return. Yeah, Saints have Traquan Smith on the reserve injured list. Uh, Alvin Kamara, tremendous all-purpose weapon, obviously, but he's averaging just 3.8 yards per carry, has just 10 receptions through four games. Why are Kamara's numbers so underwhelming?
5: I think that what you've seen so far is the, uh, particularly last week against the Giants, his receiving numbers were impacted by the fact that Tony Jones Jr. ended up getting injured partway through that game so that ended up having to move some of the carries that otherwise would have gone to Camara over to, or excuse me, that would have gone to Tony Jones Jr. over to Camara. So Camara's touches in the run game are up. He's actually set career highs in carries over the past two games, and so they're knocking down some of the the, the pass-catching responsibilities with that in an effort to make sure that they're keeping him healthy and, and, and getting him churning on the ground, which is where their biggest focus has been. But I do think that he gets a little bit more mixed into the passing game, again, as the New Orleans to figure out their identity a bit. It also makes it a little bit tougher when he's your only option, he's your only weapon on the offensive side, you're only proven weapon, at least. And so it, you know these defensives have done a good job, particularly the New York Giants, in covering him, playing him in such a way that he doesn't become as viable an option in the passing game. But I think that as the you know, offense gets healthier and you have offensive linemen that are getting healthier, that are more effective in the screen game, which they're missing right now, um, that becomes a big portion of what will allow Alvin Kamara to get a little bit
2: more involved in the passing game here. You mentioned the Saints offensive line. How has the line been so far this year?
5: Uh, hurt. <laughs> hurt. Uh, Teron Armstead, their starting left tackle is out for three to six weeks. Eric McCoy has been out since five snaps into the first game of the season. They moved Cesar Ruiz from right guard to center, which was his natural position, quote-unquote, in terms of what he played in college, but is not what he spent the entire offseason working on. He spent the entire offseason working at guard, and so they ended up having uh, former undrafted free agent Calvin Throckmorton from Oregon come in and be the starting right guard when they moved Ruiz over to center. They struggled quite a bit, and then now you have James Hurst in, in place of Teron Armstead over at the left tackle spot, which of course is Jameis Winston's blindside, so definitely something to keep an eye out on getting into this game up against the Washington football team who have a fantastic pass rush, a very talented front seven that could potentially cause the Saints some issues as they've continuously struggled over the uh over the offensive line so far. Uh they held up pretty well last week against the Giants, but the Giants notably like to try to get pressure with only four as opposed to sending five or, or, or blitzing very much. So any team that looks to overload one side or the other of the offensive line or lines up immediately over the center and tries to cover the center and attack either one of those A-gaps in A gaps and a two gap situation, that has given the Saints some trouble on the interior, which tends to throw off the passing game
2: quite a bit. The Saints defense, statistically great so far this season, but Daniel Jones did have a big game in that Giants overtime win at the Saints last Sunday. How good is this Saints defense in your opinion?
5: Yeah, I think the Saints defense is really good. You look at the the three quarters up before they started to really struggle toward the end of the game against the Giants. They'd only allowed 10 points, 199 passing yards at that point, but then in the fourth quarter, and maybe not even the full fourth quarter, but the last three quarters of that fourth quarter, and the one drive in the uh, in overtime, they gave up 203 passing yards there alone and you know 17 points over the course of those those few minutes as well so they struggled quite a bit down the way they got beaten man coverage quite a bit Kenny Galladay's crossing routes gave them a lot of trouble the Giants game plan very well for or, or adjusted for their game plan very well excuse me to add in some man beating concepts and Kadarius Tony with his yards after catch ability they finally figured out how to use him so I think that those are the pieces that ended up giving the Saints some trouble. Uh, they're going to obviously have a test here up against the Washington football team. I know that you know Curtis Samuel wasn't available for practice today. Logan Thomas is out for a little bit, and there's some other uh, receiver injuries, including the uh, really dynamic rookie in Diami Brown. But you know Terry McLaurin is still somebody that you look at that you know has to be licking his chops a little bit, watching you know one corner give up over
2: 118 yards, another one give up over 160 yards in the week prior. Saints like Washington have had problems at kicker. Uh, Saints on Wednesday terminated the contract of Aldrich Rosas, uh, announced agreement on a deal with Cody Parkey. What went wrong for Rosas?
5: Uh, well, he missed three out of four field goals that he took with New Orleans Saints. He's going to go down with a minimum of four kicking attempts is the second least accurate kicker in New Orleans Saints history. Wow. So uh, that'll that'll get you out on the street with Sean Payton pretty quickly, especially when you miss three kickers in a row, uh, or excuse me, three field goals in a row. Um, and, and you know, I mean, look, you, you, when you attempt a 58-yard field goal with the guy that missed a 52-yarder and a 36-yarder the week before, probably not the best choice. But, hey, I mean, you know, you have to show some faith in him at some point, and the Saints did, and so they've decided to move on from him. I don't know if they got any better with Cody Parkey but uh you know they certainly got somebody that's got better career numbers but we haven't seen uh you know, ever since that wild card game between the Bears and the uh the the Eagles the infamous double doink there I don't know that you've seen him really recover from that at any point thus far but we'll see if he can in the black and gold again the Saints don't need him to do so for the entire season they just need him in the interim before uh, starting kicker Will Lutz is available again off of injured reserve.
2: Saints have Sean Payton as the head coach. That has been the case for so long now. This is his 16th season as Saints head coach, if you include the 2012 season for which he was suspended for Bounty Gate. How much longer do you see Sean Payton serving as Saints head coach?
5: Look, I think if the Saints have a losing season this season, there are going to be a lot of narratives that are going to pop up around Drew, excuse me, about uh, Sean Payton being on the hot seat, not being able to do it without Drew Brees. But the fact of the matter is that Sean Payton very likely will need several bad seasons and I mean bad seasons before the New Orleans Saints organization is ready to move on from him. Um, you know he and Mickey Loomis have been such a, a, a fantastic duo for this organization and bringing in and you know the talent and coaching talent putting together winning teams. They're coming off of, you know, a fourth straight NFC South divisional title. So while I think that you know the public might look at it and say you know, this guy's on the hot seat. If they have a bad season this year, or or they come up with a losing season this year, I, I would expect him to get a very, very long leash in New Orleans before they were ready to move on from Coach Sean Payton.
2: Do you view the Saints as a playoff caliber team?
5: Yeah, I mean, I would say that they are a team that has playoff talent, but can they put it all together, and can they even get it out all on the field at the same time? I mean, They're dealing with so many injuries, and they have the suspensions, David Onyemata, which will take up six games, not just six weeks, so he's not eligible to return until week eight up against Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You have Michael Thomas, who's eligible to return after the bye week, but might need more recovery time. You have several players that are on injured reserve right now that are actually eligible to return, including starting a linebacker, Quan Alexander, another starting wide receiver, and Trey Kwon Smith. I mean, you know, they have struggled to stay healthy, and they have struggled with other things over the course of the offseason that could still come up. I mean, there's still a lingering DWI or DUI arrest for Deontay Harris that could eventually impact at some point his season. Marshawn Lattimore had, you know, an offseason arrest as well that could impact this season so there are just so many things that are still down the road for this new orleans saints team that even if they have the playoff talent which i do think that they do if they can't get it all out on the field at one time it's not going to help them right they're not going to be able to do anything with it and so i look at this i look at the saints as a team that can win anywhere between seven to eleven games this season and you know i think you have to strike beyond the middle of that you have to get as close to double digits as possible nine or ten wins before you can even really even think about being a playoff team in the nfc so far with the way that it's shaking out
2: Excellent. Ross Jackson, host of the Locked on Saints podcast, co-managing editor of the Canal Street Chronicles, which is the SB Nation side for the Saints. Really appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much.
5: Oh, absolutely. An absolute pleasure, man. Appreciate you having me on. Y'all stay safe and uh, good luck with the game this weekend. Not too much luck, though. All right. Keep safe.
2: Yes, yeah, same here. <laughs> same here. All the best, man. You as well. All right, it is time to rhyme. It is time for rhyming keys, as I will rhyme the path to victory for the Washington football team and its game against the New Orleans Saints at FedEx Field Sunday afternoon at 1. Now, these rhymes, they are not meant to be good. They are simply meant to make a few points. And in fact, I have a saying for this segment, the worse the rhyme, the better the time. And so here we go. Rhyming keys for Washington, New Orleans. How does Washington win this game? Let us rhyme the ways. Rhyming key number one. This is for Taylor Heineke. Display improved skills in facing an elite defense for the first time since the loss at the Bills. The Buffalo Bills. uh, They threw week four number one in the NFL in total defense for Football Outsiders DVOA metric, and by miles, the Saints through week four, number two in the NFL in total defense per DVOA. For a second time in three weeks, Taylor Heineke and Washington's offense are facing a very good defense. But two things. One, the Saints defense isn't nearly as complicated as the Bills defense. And two, the Saints defense is coming off having given stuff up to New York Giants quarterback Daniel Jones. Saints lost at home to the Giants, 27-21 in overtime last Sunday. Jones in that game went 28-40 for 402 yards, two touchdowns and an interception. He was not sacked at all and he had four carries for 27 yards. Heineke and Washington's loss at the Bills in week three was not horrendous, but he wasn't good enough. The two interceptions that he threw were bad. This game against the Saints on Sunday, a chance for Heineke to be better in this latest go-round against a really good defense. Running the ball well against the Saints could be tough. Uh, Saints have been excellent against the run so far this season. Saints have held opposing teams to just 3.11 yards per carry so far this season. So this could be a game in which Washington has to lean heavily on the pass. Heineke needs to be up to the challenge against this Saints defense. Make good decisions, you know, walk that line of being a baller, but also not being too risky, make accurate throws, use the weapon that is your running, but avoid unnecessary hits. Doing all of these things isn't easy. I totally get that, especially with Logan Thomas now on the reserve injured list, Uh, and also with Curtis Samuel, De'Ami Brown, and Cam Sims all dealing with injury. But I very much could see this being a game in which Washington's offensive success will be more dependent than normal on Heineke. He has been playing very well. I talked about that on Thursday's show, episode 161. He's top 13 in most major statistical categories for NFL quarterbacks. Got to continue that quality play on Sunday. And so rhyming key number one for Taylor Heineke, display improved skills in facing an elite defense for the first time since the loss at the Bills. Rhyming key number two for a Washington win, over New Orleans at FedEx Field on Sunday. This is for Washington's defense. The Saints' offense is conservative. Their offensive line is a mess. So for the first time this season, have major success. Every week, we talk about the potential for Washington's next game to be a get-right game for the struggling defense. Well, This week is no different. Here we go again, right? Uh, I refuse to believe that this defense is truly this bad. It is an outrage that this defense has been as bad as it has been so far this season. And so maybe, just maybe, Washington's defense on Sunday will finally give us a quality performance this season. The Saints do set up as a good matchup for Washington's defense. The Saints have been doing offense. In a very antiquated way, it's funny, we're not used to seeing this from the Saints offensively, given what we saw for so many years, right, from quarterback Drew Brees, head coach Sean Payton, etc. But things be different now in New Orleans. Uh, The Saints have been very run heavy on first and second down plays so far this season. Uh, Jameis Winston, in part because the Saints are without receivers Michael Thomas and Traquan Smith, is only averaging 7.13 yards per pass attempt and has totaled just 86 pass attempts through four games. Washington's pass defense has been a much bigger problem than Washington's run defense. Understand Washington through week four per DVOA, just 29th in the NFL in pass defense, but 11th in the NFL in run defense. I bet that surprises you. Uh, If Sean Payton is only going to have Winston throw the ball, say 20 to 25 times, that obviously lessens the likelihood of Washington getting scorched through the air again. And understand that the Saints offensive line Has had all kinds of injury issues, including left tackle Teron Armstead being out. Jameis Winston, per sport radar, has been pressured on 28% of his dropbacks so far this season. That's high. And so, stop me if you've heard this before, but this game is an opportunity for Washington's defensive line to generate plenty of pressure. This game is an opportunity for Chase Young to, wait for it, get a sack. Maybe even two sacks. Imagine that. Uh, Do these things happen? Who the heck knows? It's impossible to have great faith in Washington's defense right now. But I still very much believe that this defense is too talented to continue to struggle as it has. And so rhyming key number two for Washington's defense, the Saints offense is conservative. Their offensive line is a mess. So for the first time this season, have major success. And rhyming key number three, for a Washington win over New Orleans at FedEx Field on Sunday. This is for Dustin Hopkins. Don't be a klutz as the Saints are without Will Lutz. So the Saints, like Washington, have had kicker issues this season. Will Lutz is on the reserve injured list. Aldrich Rosas had been the Saints kicker, but the Saints on Wednesday terminated the contract of Rosas and announced agreement on a deal with Cody Parkey. Cody Parkey, he's the guy who had the double doink kick. January 2019, Parkey in a 16-15 Chicago Bears home loss to the Philadelphia Eagles in the wild card round of the NFL playoffs, missed a 43-yard field goal attempt with just seconds left in the fourth quarter. Chris Collinsworth on NBC proclaimed the miss a double doink as the ball hit the left upright and then the crossbar, although the kick did officially go down as a blocked field goal attempt. But here's the point. You have major kicker uncertainty for the Saints. We know that Ron Rivera continues to support Dustin Hopkins. Ron, at his post-practice press conference on Wednesday, opened up about why. I talked about that on Thursday's show, episode 161. This can be a game in which Washington actually wins the kicking battle. I mean, we need to start with Hopkins actually making all of his extra point attempts instead of missing two, like he did in the 34-30 win at the Atlanta Falcons last Sunday. But Washington may well have the edge in the kicking matchup for this game. Let's see old D-Hop reward Ron's support with a quality showing. Because if Hopkins struggles again, then what? Ron's support isn't going to last forever, and his support shouldn't last forever. And so rhyming key number three... For Dustin Hopkins, don't be a klutz, as the Saints or without Will Lutz. All right, it is prediction time. The line for this game, as of early Friday morning for Caesar's Sportsbook, is Washington plus two. The public is heavily on the Saints. I actually like Washington to win this game. Uh, If the trash defense can just not be so trashy, Washington can win this game. Give me Washington. Plus the two. All right, one more thing on the Washington football team, and then I'll get to Goldilocks. So we now have multiple reports that the DEA investigation into Ryan Vermilion is about prescription drugs. Remember, we on Monday learned that Vermilion, who is Washington's director of sports medicine, and head athletic trainer, had been placed on administrative leave for what the team called an ongoing criminal investigation unrelated to the team. More on that in just a bit. Uh, This was due to the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, Ladea, uh, and the Loudoun County Sheriff's Department last Friday having conducted a search at Washington's practice facility and at Vermilion's residence. Uh, That the investigation Is about prescription drugs isn't surprising. I mean, honestly, I debated whether I should even do this segment on a Football Friday show, but this is a big deal, this Ryan Vermillion Circumstance. But like, yeah, prescription drugs. Okay. I mean, is anybody really shocked by that? I mean, this is the DEA. So I don't know about you, but when all this broke, I figured that the investigation was about prescription drugs and maybe performance enhancing drugs. Uh, I've mentioned to you some of the things uh, that I learned about Ryan Vermillion a few months ago in speaking to a source. I mean, in talking to that source, it was made pretty clear that, yeah, prescription drugs are what's going on here in terms of the concerns about Ryan Vermillion so these reports about the investigation being about prescription drugs aren't a surprise but I did want to hit on this. Uh, we also by the way have the NFL Players Association now having its say we on Thursday got word that the NFLPA has opened a formal investigation into the Ryan Vermillion situation uh, since the situation per a note to all NFLPA certified agents quote involves an NFL club senior medical staff member and relates to players health safety and medical care. End quote. Now, look, the NFLPA is going to flex its muscle in a situation like this because that's what a union knows that it needs to do in a situation like this. This is an easy public relations win for the NFLPA. Oh, we are concerned about this. And look, I'm sure the NFLPA is concerned about this, but the NFLPA gets demolished by the owners every time the collective bargaining agreement comes up. Uh, But yeah, this Ryan Vermillion situation may well be around for a while. And this is a terrible look. For the Washington football team. And I really do wonder now about the team saying that the ongoing criminal investigation is unrelated to the team. A, the guy works for the team. So you could argue by definition, the investigation can't be unrelated to the team. The DEA, after all, raided the Washington football team's practice facility. How is that unrelated to the team? I don't know. But B, you know, you think about this logically, all right? So Ryan Vermilion. If he was illegally giving out prescription meds to players, what? Did he just magically stop doing that when he got hired by Washington in January 2020? I mean, let's think about this. Let's play this out, okay? Ryan Vermillion is in the NFL for decades. He's been guilty of illegal activity according to the DEA, maybe, possibly, right? For who knows how many years. Comes to Washington and then just stops. Like the behavior just stops. Like, really? Is the DEA's case going to be that Vermillion did what he allegedly did for years with the Carolina Panthers, maybe even going back to Vermillion's time with the Miami Dolphins, but then just stopped when he got hired by Washington? I mean, come on, okay? I really hope that the Washington football team doesn't come to regret having said that the investigation is unrelated to the team. Uh, Because on the surface, that looks like it could end up being another major PR gaffe by this team. We shall see. Football is what we care about the most right now. I get that, but I did want to make mention of this because the Vermilion situation is a big deal and it may well not be going away anytime soon. All right, it is that time. Goldilocks for week six of the college football season. You are familiar, I am sure, with Goldilocks and the Three Bears. This is Goldilocks, my weekly college football picks against the spreads for Maryland, Navy, Virginia Tech, and Virginia. Eight and seven on the season. Saturday, a loaded day, maybe the most loaded day of the season in terms of games for the big four, three of the teams are facing ranked teams. And so here we go. Goldilocks. All odds are from Caesar Sportsbook as of early Friday morning. Goldilocks game number one, Maryland at number seven, Ohio State, Saturday at noon. The Terrapins are plus twenty-one. Uh, there is no overstating how disappointing last Friday night was for the Terps. They fell to four and one with a 51. 14 loss to then number five Iowa at Capital One Field at Maryland Stadium and College Park. This was one of the more hyped and anticipated Maryland football games in years. This was a chance for the program under head coach Mike Loxley to author a signature win or at the very least be competitive in a big game. And the Terps got demolished. Uh, now, they actually led in the first quarter 7-3. I find that hysterical. But the Terps then allowed Iowa to score 41 consecutive points, including losing the second quarter 31-0. The Terps in that second quarter committed four turnovers. The Terps for the game committed an astounding seven turnovers. Six of the Terps' turnovers were interceptions, five of which were by Terp starting quarterback Talia Tungavailoa. Yeah, five interceptions for Talia. He was just off throughout his time in the game. And you had what happened to Terps receiver Dante Demas Jr., a nasty looking and season-ending right leg injury on an early second quarter loss fumble on a kickoff return. Just a disaster of a night for Maryland. And so now the Terps have to try to rebound in a game at number seven, Ohio State. Uh, I did a whole thing on this on Monday's show, episode 158. This loss to Iowa, marked yet another beatdown loss for the Terps against a ranked Big Ten team. The Terps don't just routinely lose to ranked Big Ten teams. The Terps routinely get pasted by ranked Big Ten teams. And so why should Saturday be any different? I mean, do I expect Talia to play better? Yes, it would be stunning if he threw five interceptions for a second consecutive game, but the Buckeyes are the Buckeyes. Uh, They're great. Ohio State is 4-1, did lose at home to then number 12, Oregon, 35-28 on September 11th, but the Buckeyes have scored at least 41 points in each of the team's other four games this season, including wins at Minnesota and at Rutgers. Ohio State through week five was third in the FBS in offensive efficiency per ESPN. C.J. Stroud through week five was number six among qualified quarterbacks in the FBS in ESPN's total QBR. Ohio State's defense isn't great, but it hasn't had to be great. The public is all over Ohio State. I would love to make a contrarian play and take the Terps, but it's not like we've had reverse line movement. And until proven otherwise, Maryland can in no way be trusted against ranked Big Ten teams. So give me Ohio State, minus twenty-one
4: make money, money, make money,
2: money, money. Yes, thank you, Snoop. Goldilocks, game number two, Virginia Tech, home to number 14 Notre Dame, Saturday night at 7.30. The point spread is even, very interesting point spread. So Tech is coming off a bye, hasn't played since improving to three and one with a 21-10 win over Richmond at Lane Stadium in Blacksburg on September 25th. That was not an impressive win. Richmond is an FCS school, played most of the game without starting quarterback Joe Mancuso due to an injured right hand. Uh the Hokies quarterback Braxton Burmeister had another game in which he, you know, wasn't bad but also wasn't great. He got removed from the game briefly for Knox Kadem who threw an interception deep in Hokies territory. Notre Dame is coming off a loss, a 24-13 home loss to then number 7 Cincinnati. Last Saturday, that game followed a 41-13 blowout win over then number 18 Wisconsin at Soldier Field on September 25th. It has been a wild season for Notre Dame already. The Irish have used three quarterbacks and four left tackles, uh, but Notre Dame is four and one. Now, the money for this game has gone from being heavily on Notre Dame to now being pretty even. The line is very fishy to me. Yes, Notre Dame is coming off a loss, and yes. Virginia Tech is coming off a bye, and yes, the game is in Blacksburg, but Tech did not look good in its last game, and Notre Dame is ranked, and yet the point spread is even. The line seems to be begging you to take Notre Dame. I'm gonna take Virginia Tech with that pick'em line.
4: Make money, money, make money, money, money.
2: Yeah, something's not right about that Tech Notre Dame line. Goldilocks game number three. Virginia at Louisville, Saturday afternoon at 3. The Cavaliers are plus 2.5. Wahoo Wah coming off a big win, improved to 3-2 and with a 30-28 win at Miami. Now two Thursday nights ago, September 30th, Cavaliers never trailed in the game. They led in the third quarter by scores of 19-7 and 25-14, led in the fourth quarter. 30-21 and then held on for the victory as Hurricanes kicker Andres Boragallos missed a 33-yard field goal attempt as time expired in the fourth quarter. The kick went off the left upright. Uh, the Wahoos defense of having been a really bad in each of the Hoos two previous games was much better albeit against the Miami team that was without starting quarterback Dierick King due to a shoulder injury. But the Who's won despite quarterback Brennan Armstrong not being at his best. Uh, he did not throw for at least 300 yards for the first time in five games this season. He went 25 of 44 for just 268 yards, 6.09 yards per pass attempt, a touchdown, and an interception. Was sacked three times. Armstrong, during his postgame press conference, said that he, quote, played like crap, end quote. Uh, UVA got back running back Wayne Papa from a one-game absence caused by a concussion that was suffered in the 59-39 loss at then number 21, North Carolina, on September 18th. And Tau Papa was good, 11 carries, 62 yards, and a touchdown. A problem for the Cavs again, though, penalties. Uh, the Cavs had seven accepted penalties for 60 yards, raising the UVA total to 27 accepted penalties over the last three games. Louisville is 3-2, coming off a loss, 37-34, at then number 24, Wake Forest, last Saturday. The public is heavily on Louisville, and yet the line for the game is has moved in the direction of fewer points for Virginia. We call that reverse line movement an indication of sharp money on the Cavs. And so gimme Virginia, plus two and a half.
4: Make money, money, make money, money,
2: money. And then Goldilocks, game number four, Navy, home to number 24, SMU, Saturday afternoon at 3.30. The midshipmen are plus 13, and a half. Uh, Mids are coming off their first win of the season, improved to 1-3 with a 34-30 win over UCF at Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium in Annapolis last Saturday. Great comeback win. The midshipmen overcame a 30-17 fourth quarter deficit. Navy won the fourth quarter 17-0. The Mids triple option offense still wasn't great, but was much better. Mids totaled 348 rushing yards and three touchdowns on 76 carries, 4.58 yards per carry. Navy's defense wasn't perfect, but did hold UCF to just 2-9 and nine on third downs and did have a big fourth quarter interception. And Navy's special teams, which had been really bad over the first three games of the season, delivered multiple big plays, a block first quarter extra point attempt and a late second quarter block punt. Head coach Kenny Amatololo during his postgame press conference said that Navy is back. Uh, this game against SMU will be a great test of that. SMU is 5-0, and has fattened up on some bad teams, but the last two wins have been impressive. 42 34 at TCU on September 25th, 41 17 over South Florida last Saturday. Quarterback Tanner Mordecai has 24 touchdown passes versus six interceptions. Running back Ulysses Bentley, the fourth, is averaging 7.6 yards per carry over 53 carries. The public money for this game is pretty even. I don't know that Navy wins this game, but I do think that Navy can keep the game at least relatively close. It sure felt like Navy found some things, found itself uh, with that win over UCF in Annapolis last Saturday. And so give me Navy, plus 13 and a half.
4: Make money, money, make money, money, money.
2: And so there you go. Ohio State, minus 21. Virginia Tech, even. Virginia, plus two and a half. Navy, plus 13 and a half. Your Goldilocks for college football, week six. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Monday show episode 163 will be a Washington football team post game show of whatever happens in Washington's game against the New Orleans Saints at FedEx Field on Sunday. But I'll also discuss the jam-packed Saturday in college football in the region, Maryland at number seven, Ohio State, Virginia Tech, home to number 14, Notre Dame, Virginia at Louisville, and Navy home to number 24, SMU. Have a great weekend. Hail to the Burgundy and the Gold. The time for talking is done with this Washington defense. As Jack Del Rio said on Thursday, let's have a great defensive performance. Let's get to three and two, and I'll talk to you on
4: Monday. Well, I think what's happening is there's a lot of talk, and you can't talk your way out of it. So, doesn't really matter what I say, what we talk about, it's what we do.